Darmstadt on air number seven. Spaces and Islands. Marco Blau in conversation with Ayana Bitter Johnson. Hello and thank you for joining Darmstadt on air, our series of conversations on music and experiment. My name is Thomas Schäfer from the Darmstadt Summer Course team and I welcome you to the seventh edition of our podcast. In this episode number seven, we are witnessing the start of a new artistic collaboration between two extraordinary musicians. Marco Blau, trumpet player of Ensemble Musikfabrik, soloist and Darmstadt brass tutor, has started a series of seven commissions that take the human breath as their main idea and inspiration. Ayana Witter-Johnson will contribute one of the new pieces for trumpet. Born in London into a family with a Jamaican background, Ayana's musical expression is taking many different shapes. She is a singer-songwriter, composer, cellist, pianist and performer who embraces various musical cultures and, as she names it, navigates transnational identity within her music. After a first email and Skype exchange, they met in person on 4 September 2020 in Cologne, sitting in the Musikfabrik studios with musical rehearsals in the background, they had also listened to Marco's interpretation of Georg Friedrich Haas' Lament in the Memory of Eric Garner from 2015 entitled I Can't Breathe. In their conversation they touched topics like belonging and background, everyday experiences of being a black woman, being a black female artist, and the burden of having to represent that group. They talk about white privilege about one's personal sound and about being on the fringes of many worlds. Enjoy listening. My name is Marco Blau and I'm meeting with Ayana Witte-Johnson. And um, it's quite an interesting meeting for me because uh, we have only met briefly on Skype and we had some email exchange and we just met for real in Cologne. Yes, today. Today. <laughs> and uh, we had a talk of uh, already more than an hour just to warm up and melt the ice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, maybe for the audience in, in the Darmstadt summer courses, do you want to give a short introduction of yourself? Yeah, why not? Um, so my name is Ayana Witter-Johnson. I am a British composer, singer, cellist, pianist, dancer, actress... <laughs> And a renaissance person. A renaissance woman. Um, I was born and raised in London. My grandparents came to London from Jamaica in the Windrush generation in the late 1950s, all four of my grandparents, and both my parents were born in London. So I'm definitely a Londoner. <laughs> do you feel you're a Londoner, you're British, or do you feel you have a different background as well? Um, I feel like I'm a Londoner. I feel like I'm a Jamaican, a British Jamaican, Britain. So most of my grandparents and their siblings and all their children now live um, in either Britain or America. So I just wanted to have that sense of um, feeling connected to my heritage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you're in England, you feel... You have a London culture in you, or you feel also that you're coming from. There's, there's two cultures. There's, yeah. there's always there's a dual culture. There's who you are when you leave the house, I guess, and then there's at home speaking patois, um, just kind of not having to be so aware of the color of your skin in your house. I guess that's the main difference. Mm. In your house, you're just you. Your family are who they are. They kind of look like you. That's not really a, a thing. But as soon as you step out of the house, there's an awareness of who you are racially. Um, and even more so, London's the melting pot. So less so in London. But if I leave England and I go to another European country, or even if I leave London... Like in Cologne. Like in Cologne, yeah. <laughs> Where I definitely feel aware of my... Uh, of my 
skin and my race and who I am. All right. Can yeah. you can you just describe that feeling to the me? Feeling, because, uh, that yeah. would be an alien feeling to me. <laughs> I suppose. Um, what does it look like? It looks like, for example, coming down to the breakfast bar in the hotel. Lovely hotel. Love it. Um, coming down to the breakfast bar and there may be you know, tables of people already eating breakfast, but they might stop their conversation and look at you for a little while and then maybe go back to their conversation or stay quiet and keep looking at you whilst oh, you're wow. trying to figure out where to sit or whatever or choose something to eat. So there's like a sense of um, being viewed all the time. Wow. It may be an innocent, oh, her hair might look nice or I like what she's wearing, but whatever it is because I can't mind read it feels like what's going on here is there something am I doing something have I not done is something has it always been present it's always present yeah Yeah. it's present since your childhood yeah it's, it's just something that I guess you learn and your parents kind of help you to just know that once you've left the house there are things you're going to have to be made aware of if you're in a shop and you're buying something try not to look suspicious or like try to keep your hands out of your pocket or so these little things that you pick up maybe from your parents themselves because they're experiencing a similar thing um that you just acclimatize you know the deal you just get on with it because at, at the same time you've got to live you've got to buy things you've got to go out and i i try not to overthink the narrative i'm just like ah yes there's that person looking at me so i would rather not sit right where they are going to be looking at me I'd rather sit on the other side so I don't have to feel them looking at me so I can just eat my breakfast wow. <laughs> these are like yeah these are the micro things that you have to navigate pretty much every day yeah yes right and for you as a composer and for me as a composer there's a sense of um proving oneself in every situation uh, you know is what you've created really good? Like, how did you manage to jump through the hoops and get this opportunity? You must be really good because only really good black composers make it into this space, you know? Mm. Yeah. So, um, so what is really good then? I mean, how's exactly. that, that going to be defined exactly. when you have a mixture of cultures in you? And... You know, really good often... I mean, in my experience... I'm just bringing my unique cocktail. So it's already maybe something unexpected um, and not what what people may be used to. And therefore, it's like, is it good or is it just different? <laughs> is, it, is it good or is it different? I'm like trying to let go of all of those kind of narratives, assumptions, because... If I don't let go of those, it just it's hard to create anything. It must suffocate. Yeah. So. So when you have a, like an empty piece of paper in yeah, front of you, yeah. all these uh, all these criteria, the external criteria <laughs> that you do not really know what they are, yeah. you can't fulfill them. You can't fulfill them. You and know what comes good. from the inside is you doubt about because you don't, you don't know what um, what will constitute exactly good enough or even enough. So. Um, I composed a fanfare, which is why, partly why I'm in Cologne. Yes. I, I was commissioned by the Gersenich, am I pronouncing that right? Gersenich, yeah. Gersenich Orchestra. Orchestra, um, to write a piece, um, a, a reimagined version of a piece I'd written many years ago um, that was conducted by François Xavier Roth, who's their conductor. And he asked me to write a new version of the piece um, and longer, a longer version for a much bigger orchestra. So I did that, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, in this time of Corona, they were unable to, or they were unable to perform it. So they said, instead of disappearing from the program, we would like you to compose a fanfare and perform one of your songs. Um, I sing and play cello, and it, it might be nice to bring something new to the classical audience, and maybe include some of the orchestral players to accompany you. So that's what's happening um, on the weekend. And this fanfare we rehearsed last night, I don't write many fanfares, it's probably my first fanfare. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it works, but the ending, the ending wasn't that strong. And I guess 
I just had a feeling of, oh, I've come here with my fanfare. I want to change it. I want to adjust it because you can't always get everything right or even as you want it to sound the first time. And there's a lot of pressure even being in the classical sphere of composing. You've done the score, you hand it in, it's done, it's finished, it's perfect. There's no changes to be made. And that's always quite pressurizing when really it should be a back and forth yeah, I think here in uh, Musique Fabrique we have a, a lot of space. Yeah. We, we reserve a lot of space, literally, in, in spaces here in the building. In the Media Park in Cologne, we have all these different rehearsal spaces. We reserve those spaces and also time space to actually meet the composers and yeah. exchange. And actually, we wish for this moment of uh, to be able to give feedback or to get feedback yeah. in the process of production. Completely. So if we get a half-finished score, that is an interesting moment to actually know what is the composer doing. Right, exactly. And is it is actually possible? Or yeah. can we push and get even more? Push. Right. Yeah. And I, I wanted the piece to feel traditional and ritualistic and the kind of, like a ceremonial, like a, a very classic ceremonial opening to this Um season it's the first concert of the season so it felt there was like a, a sense of shame that was rising in me oh mm. it's not it's not right or I don't know if it's if it's good enough um but I stayed up last night I revised it I submitted it and hopefully we can have another go before the concert but it, it's just owning that you know this is a journey it's a musical dialogue it's it's Did you get feedback from conductor and orchestra? Um, I spoke to Francois, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and we kind of just talked a little bit about, if anything, what was so nice and I felt so supported. It's probably the only time that I felt, re- you know, this supported by a conductor. He said, you know, just let it, let the ending rest in the spirit of the whole piece. I think what the ending tried to do was kind of bring the mood up <laughs> in a way but it was a little too sudden a little too um kind of presented to us as opposed to kind of finding our way to the ending through the piece mm. so i i do feel um supported in that way and not necessarily you didn't finish or it didn't you know it mm. wasn't right so that felt good so i think that encouraged me to just just do it just finish it yeah yeah that was nice yeah so how do you develop a, uh, an own unique uh, voice or, or your own music with this in the mix of cultures and in the, in the world that we are in, where you, your songs are, you, you also write a lot of songs, yes. like a singer-songwriter, you accompany yourself on your cello, yeah. you have a beautiful shows running, and then in the same time you also have your paper on the desk and write pieces for, <laughs> for classical musicians. Yeah. Yeah, how did, how do you how did this come about, and how do you develop this? And I can only imagine there's an incredible tension between the two worlds. Yeah, there's a sense of me wanting to bring both those pathways close together. But how did it come about? I started learning the piano when I was three. My mum thought it'd be a good idea for me to learn something. So I've always had this classical thread running from the beginning through my piano training, through learning to play the cello. And then at the same time, you know, growing up in London in a Jamaican household, there was reggae and then, you know, 90s R&B and hip hop and soul and pop and folk and all kinds of music um, in general. So everything was always coexisting. But my classical world doing recitals and concerts never necessarily merged over to the other world, but it lived in this performance space on stage and my kind of pop life lived in this um, uh, relaxed at home singing around the house environment Um, and going to Trinity Laban to study composition I knew that I couldn't go there as a cellist or an opera singer or a jazz singer because I, I didn't want to be so narrowly focused I wanted to ultimately explore who I am through music and composition was the only space in there that felt wide enough for me to just explore who I am through sound and be immersed in different sound worlds. So it's a sense of um, 
always telling a story through my music. So it could be through song, which is quite a, a immediate way to do that. Um, and also through composing um, more in-depth forms, um, larger scale works really for other people to, mm. um, to join you in that, in that journey. So it's always a storytelling pursuit. It's always a sharing of some discovery I'm making about who I am as a person or something I've experienced or someone else's experience of discovery or change or growth. That's the, the thing that is always in there. So the, the discovery, the developing of language through music is also for you a very narrative thing. It's always, you're always expressing uh, almost a concrete story, like a I'm always, story. I'm always expressing an emotion, an actual story. I'm sometimes just in the process of writing the song and figuring out how I feel about something um, that might be hard to decipher when I'm just thinking about it or going through what happened. Um, if I've created something, I can let part of it go. I can feel good about it. I've made something beautiful from it. I can share it. I can release part of that. So it's, it's as much a therapeutic process in making the thing, sharing it, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So just sounds for the sense of sounds... That is not, it's just not happening. Sounds for the sense of sounds. As a listener, I can appreciate sounds for the, for the sake of sound because I can almost like meditate in that space. I can, mm. I can not think about anything in that space. Right. <laughs> so um, that might be something that draws itself to me because I'm doing a lot more meditation and I'm very much on the kind of self-enlightenment journey, kundalini yoga, etc. <laughs> so sound for the sake of sound probably feels more attractive to me now than it would have done at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that's uh, always how I felt about playing the trumpet, was that it was much less music-based mm. than it was just uh, a producing sound was the, was the actual thing. That was the fascination. Ah. That was like... The confirming who I am or what I'm, what I am, a uh, trumpet player, uh, you know, just producing sound. That was that was my fascination, and the music for me uh, almost came second. Right. Yeah. Okay. So because I was terribly annoyed in uh, school where you had to learn certain repertoire, mm -hmm. and the teachers started yelling about to you about you know this needs more accent and that needs more staccato and that needs some interpretation French and German. <laughs> I don't know what that is, you know, but I know that this is the sound that I like. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then also they started interfering with your sound. Like oh. if you study in a certain school and your teachers are from a certain orchestra with a certain culture, they want you to sound like mm. the sound has to fit in this orchestra culture. So you start interfering with your sound. You have to sound like this. Mm. And then you start to adjust your equipment and you really literally feel that you get further away from yourself. From you, yeah. Because uh, you're searching something that isn't yours. And, yes, uh, and yeah. then you get into a cheap imitation of something. Yes. Absolutely. It loses strength and vitality. Yeah. And I completely resonate with that. And that's the realization I've been having over the past year or so that you can't sound like someone else and kind of really discover who you are. You can journey through something close to someone else to understand maybe how your instrument works technically or how to compose something structurally but the real honest expression of you uh, there's only one version of that and that's what interests me now um i like lots of things and i appreciate lots of uh, ways in which people do things but that's not who i am or what i sound like so i am um, embracing embracing that i guess tension between the two worlds this is what my voice how it manifests when I'm writing a fanfare. This is how my voice manifests when I'm singing a song. This is how it manifests when I am, you know, just writing something for me that I don't plan on sharing to anyone, you know. Does it happen, yeah? Yeah. And you have a pile of scores unperformed? I have all kinds of things. Unperformed, songs unperformed, 
all kinds of things <laughs> in a hard drive. <laughs> and it's great. I I um I try to write at least a song or a piece every week. Um just a little thing. I'll sit down and th- this thing is is my thing. It's probably never going to go anywhere. Um because so much of my time is is taken with things for other people and things that are going to go somewhere and be shared, etc. Mm-hmm. So it's just finding the time to do something just for you, um, which is a nice practice. I study composition and primarily the experiences I've had have been very intimate. You know, friends may have asked me for a piece or I've... Um, when I when I took part in the London Symphony Orchestra Panofnik Young Composer Scheme, I had a chance to work with a fantastic orchestra and explore some ideas. So I've had some very key experiences, um, but not necessarily presented myself or or kind of opened myself up to kind of sharing all of that work so widely so it's almost a bit why, why was that why did that not happen um, it didn't happen because I think I've just been taken with being a performer and <laughs> and my life as a singer-songwriter has definitely um, been kind of the thing I've focused most on um, and now my my life as a composer at least is unfolding in a very organic moment by moment um commission by commission way so it feels like the beginning of that journey in a public sense mm-hmm. it's, it's almost been like a private thing that I've done in intimate spaces and shared work and had had some more wonderful projects to work on but not been something that I've told people about per se mm-hmm. it's almost like a secret life yeah yeah and that's probably because I'm still trying to figure out how to make that make sense in one space and if if it is contemporary or not is it is it do, does it fit into what my understanding or maybe my sense of the contemporary music world because i have so much um affinity and appreciation for and awareness of what's happening in a certain space i'm like do i do i fit there do do i fit i equally I can appreciate the jazz community. I'm like, but do I really fit there? Mm-hmm. And then equally, there's there's another, you know, singer songwriter community. I'm like, do do I fit there? So I I'm I'm uh, on the fringes of so many worlds, and I'm just probably feeling safe in my island on some level. The island that you created that I created for myself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I also feel as a performer very much on an island. Uh, I'm in a contemporary music scene exploring trumpet repertoire, developing yeah. trumpet repertoire. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, uh, I found my, so to say, uh, economy and I found the scene where I can present the work and I get invited in a certain scene, but it's very much an island. It's, mm. it's pretty predictable yeah. where we perform. And then suddenly to meet somebody like you who's very active in different genres as well as performer, <laughs> I think, how, how did I, first of all, how did I miss it? And second of all, uh, how can I connect it? Will... Will I be functioning in that kind of context? Will that relation work? Yeah. Can you actually develop something new that makes sense? Yeah. Uh, what is actually contemporary music? Mm-hmm. Um, where does it take us? Um, there was a time where where a regular rhythm and harmony was almost a taboo or had to be explained a thousand times to be allowed on the stage. And and you know now times is changing. Uh, a lot so does this get a new chance or mm. I, I'm full of question marks about a relationship in fact yeah. you know, is, is this gonna work isn't this too weird this is too much of a wild card you know it's better to commission a composer I know I at least know what I get you know? what's gonna happen <laughs> what's gonna happen yeah. next? what's gonna happen and that's the thing I think you hit on something there with harmony a lot of my education in terms of composition Um, it was new for me to kind of enter the sound world where harmony wasn't ruling the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sound, as we talked about before, just the actual the texture, the sound world was just as important as, you know, the chord progression. And where 
I spend so much time in the land of chord progressions and melodies and stuff, that's probably what has come back into my composing. There is a strong sense of, yeah, I do love harmony and melody, and that's just what it is. And I do appreciate... Um, I do appreciate finding out and exploring what each instrument can bring uniquely and mixing the two together, but not forfeiting one or the other. And that's where sometimes I can feel, do I belong in this space? There's so much conventional harmony here. Like, can I fit really into the contemporary space with that, with that desire to still uh, keep that present in the music? But I think, like you said, I don't know what can come from this collaboration. Equally, I'm like, oh, what, what can come from this collaboration? And it's that not knowing and sense of something exciting will happen either way. Mm-hmm. It, it, will, it will bring me closer to a sense of, ah, that's more of what I want to do. Or that may not be so much, but I still learned this. And therefore that's, you know. Right. Yeah. And uh, we just listened, before we started uh, recording our talking, because we've been talking before uh, for an hour, huh? um, we listened together to this piece by Georg Friedrich Haas. Yes. So that's a piece without uh, regular rhythm and harmony. So what? how do you perceive that kind of piece? Yeah, that's, um, it has its own rhythm. It's not necessarily beat-driven in a, in a rigid way, but... There's so much jazz, I get so much jazz from the piece. A lot. Not just because of the trumpet or the mutes or, you know, the, some of the techniques. It's more the kinds of melodic ideas suggest to me a kind of fragmented jazz language. And also, jazz is such an umbrella term from free jazz to mm. kind of, you know, Dixieland. It's very... Uh, There's a lot in there that I would describe as jazz music. So, so for me, it felt like a free jazz improvisation. That's the vibe I got from it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and the the structure. The structure. Because that is that is for, for me the the huge difference with free improv is that um, at least I am not able in a free improvisation to create a structure that is so uh. so. Uh, well shaped. Yes. So to say. I, and I guess that would change if it was just you doing a solo improvisation and you playing with other people, you know, how to kind of keep the structure uh, or, or develop a certain structure. I felt like the structure in, in I Can't Breathe very much had different characters at play. So when an idea would come back, I could hear a shift, a change, a development in that idea and it made me think that something was happening to this character as it progresses along and um, especially texturally that those were the moments where I thought, ah, what is he trying to say about what's happening next to this character mm-hmm. that's how I perceived the structure to be bringing me along a storyline and at points I felt uncomfortable At points, I felt um, I felt kind of an, as an observer. Um, at times uncomfortable, at times familiar, at times um, at ease. But it held me in this in a same in a similar world where I could latch on to a narrative. That's. Mm-hmm where I was with it. And so the title of the piece is I Can Breathe and obviously this uh, this piece is five years old. Uh, it's written after um, Eric Garner was, was murdered by uh, New York police. Um, and now five years later uh, George Floyd is dying after saying the same words uh, and many other victims of police violence. Um, I Can Breathe has become a slogan of yeah. uh, of Black Lives Matter for obvious reasons and so do you see a context for what I'm wondering about is this, this I Can Breathe this uh, a white composer constructing a fantastic solo piece um, with this as a theme with the language of uh, contemporary music you know he uses the instrument he uses the notation he uses microtonality mm-hmm. he uses the uh, uh, 
uh, spectrums of the of the muting and and it's all uh, common techniques used in in his composing in contemporary music composing mm. and then suddenly it says something about a world that is so much bigger can you relate what what i'm saying do you understand what my doubt is there or? i think if he had written the same piece but not titled it i can't breathe we would have maybe a slightly different conversation. Mm-hmm. I think there's something in the titling that attributes a certain perspective to it. You know, it brings up lots of questions. What exactly are you saying about it? Um, given that those were the words of a dying man and as a composer who's still living you're in a position of privilege to be able to compose something to comment on this yeah. very thing. What exactly are you suggesting? What are you trying to say with the piece? And um, because obviously music, it's open for us to take from it what we will, but sometimes the composer providing context can put it in a space where people you can look and listen different. You can listen differently, yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably maybe the title came first mm. and then he started composing as composing and then giving it a title mm. also I Can Breathe I think in that time in uh, December 2014 wasn't it's so widespread and used right true it was uh, quite possibly yeah. yeah it had a different tone I think as an artist you do you, you can express yourself as you wish to express yourself um, there's always a, a sense of being sensitive um, with sensitive subjects, mm-hmm. you know. And, and this is a sensitive subject. It's a obviously. sensitive subject, and if you're filling your music, say there were lyrics lyrically with racial slurs and hatred, and there, there are ways in which it can be questioned if, <laughs> if your expression is is being sensitive, but. There's always going to be opposing opinions to how anyone expresses themselves. That's mm. kind of fundamental to all things in life. There's someone who will agree and who will not agree. Um, he felt called to share something and to create something in response. And honestly, I think that's his prerogative. I think it's very, uh, it's open enough um, to allow the listener to come up with what they want. It's just the title can be debated. But like you said, it can... What is your opinion? What is your point on it? My opinion, I... I think it's too sensitive for me to use those words because I imagine his family that are still living, his friends, the community. It's too raw for me to approach... um, Titling something so suggestive, so directly suggestive, um, I would have just yeah maybe giving it given it a different title, but still kept the music as is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I I'm wondering how we can deal with these sensitivities because uh, it's also a you know a wide privilege that we are able to have this compose to put it up on the stage and we can we can just play it and, and in fact we want to make a sincere statement but are we you know is it yes. is it arriving anywhere you know I'm, <laughs> I'm imagining this situation where I premiered the piece yeah. and it was in a in a concert where actually the composer asked me to he sent me the score and asked me can you please premiere it and, and have it filmed and put it on YouTube so mm. that it's out there mm. And I thought uh, five years ago that was for our world still more uh, seldom than it is now. Now everything gets put on YouTube. Um, so for me it was a, a big thing to do, to put a premiere of a difficult piece out there in uh, YouTube. But I, I actually thought it was an important statement at that time. But on the evening itself it was part of an orchestra con- concert. And mm. I was playing it for, of course, an entirely white audience. Yeah. And uh, afterwards there was a reception and uh, to which I was invited and I was thanked for playing the piece and there was a glass of champagne and we did cheers and, 
And and I thought this is so wrong. There's, <laughs> there's no uh, exchange about Why the content. There's yeah. no reflection on yeah. what happened. There's no suggestions about what can we do. How yeah. can we deal with this thing? Yeah. How can we develop a language so that we can actually talk about this? Talk and, about it, yeah. and I think five years later, yeah. we are actually still in the same situation, except mm. that maybe now more people are aware of the yeah. awkwardness and the sens- sensitivity of the sensitivity, and actually. In the sense that sometimes a strong title can bring an opportunity to have a discussion. When something is quite clearly about something, it can make it easier to open a discussion. So educationally, it can serve a purpose. Um, In this particular piece, I don't find it overly problematic because of when it was actually written and how things have developed since then. It now, like you say, has more meaning. But... If it's used and programmed in such a way that you can then open the door to have new conversations, it has a it serves a function in that yeah. way. So, so I get back to this my position again as mm. a as a white privileged man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, how do I present this? Okay. How do I, how yes. do I start talking about this? You know, if people <laughs> would ask me, "Are you a racist?" or you know, "Do you have a they have a problem with difference in race or whatever?" How was your take on that? I would, of course, my first reaction would be, "I don't, I'm not a racist, or I don't want to be, or whatever." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that is a very romantic. Kind of statement because I grew up in an entirely white society right. that uh, is, you know, rich and wealthy because of uh, also because of 400 years of history of slavery. Yes, and and we grew up with words that were just blatantly racist, right. considered completely normal. Different. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and gradually during life when you grow up you grow aware like yes. this is actually wrong. Hopefully you grow aware. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, you know, every word that needs to be changed or banned from a language is oh. it releases huge debates, public debates. You know, right. about whether things are good and, and not good that are used yeah. to not used. You know, in the Netherlands, even black peat, right? In the Netherlands, <laughs> black peat. <laughs> uh, but I. I would say that, like, <laughs> you yourself, as you as you express, no, I don't resonate with being racist, but then there's two layers. There's the individual, and then there's saying, okay, do you know what? I exist within uh, institutional racism, yeah. and that's the other layer. Yeah, so, it's a yeah I benefit from yeah. X, Y, and Z because of because of the systems that have been put in place. Yeah. So that's that's even that conversation in and of itself is an important one for people who don't have that distinction between yes, me personally and then where I exist within a framework. Yeah. Yeah. So within the music world, because this is a very interesting discussion to just have generally, but if we try to speak about music and, yeah. and I think the I Can Breathe is a kind of a, a great uh, piece as an example, like mm. how how do we deal with that in a in a way that it uh, shows uh, opening for uh, provides opening for up for discussion, but also wakes up the scene and says, what can we do? What can we contribute in this dialogue? And how, what can we contribute in opening up the world for the things that we didn't see? But we didn't see. So, for example, if I can't breathe, it was composed by a black composer. That would be a different conversation again. Yeah. So it's it's saying into this world of institutional racism, we are beginning to dismantle it by allowing other people to even be in the space, mm-hmm. for example. So um, sometimes that's reaching out to let people know that this space even exists because it can be a little bit of a bubble. Maybe there are like black composers all over the place but not aware that for example, Darmstadt exists or whatever, concert hall or whatever. So there's a sense of um, being proactive in the exchange so that, or a call for works or, a, you know, where are these young composers? Maybe they're in this school or that school. So if you really want to kind of cultivate the landscape, like we're doing now, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm, I'm not the only um, black composer in this project, but it's, an awareness that there are multiple voices, perspectives, let's bring them into the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more people do that, the it shifts, it shifts what people expect. So when I then turn up somewhere, it's not, 
unusual oh yeah we've had like five other black female composers already this year you know yeah. it's not the one person on the horizon it's yeah yeah that's yeah we know we know what that is so that's right. a way to do it I think so because yeah. music is that space that people can um, come together it's such a beautiful unifier more than other spaces you can accept different musical voices from whoever it's the music that's speaking to you at the end of the day and the more you allow different voices into the space the healthier so the that space. would also uh, change the criteria of what contemporary music is it would yeah and do people like change is the question <laughs> <laughs> Who, do people like to change? Do people like things where they are? You know, these are the. This is what we were discussing about being out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. It, it requires everyone then to be out of their comfort zone, in a way that you know, is new. Mm-hmm. It's new. Yeah. So, are you tired of talking about racial issues in the society you live in? Partly, I I'm not tired of the subject matter because it affects me and a lot of my family and friends. It's not something that um, should be shied away from. But it does feel as though whenever you're in a space, you're having to um, represent... It's, there's a burden that comes with it. Like yeah. You're having to defend your basic rights. You're having The energy it takes to kind of just show up in a space, everything becomes politicised when actually you just want to get a croissant or have a cup of tea. I don't know, it just becomes a whole thing all the time. <laughs> or, you know, is your music relevant if it's not um, touching upon these these issues? But these issues are also so prevalent. Walls need to be broken down. You know, perspectives need to be opened up. So, it's a so this is one of the reasons I feel really good about performing I Can Breathe as much as possible, as often yeah. as possible, because... I do feel that, uh, you know, the way Gilfried has described this is that he is trying in that piece to to only think of the, you know, the victim that Eric Garner became that day. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't give any sound or moment to the perpetrator. So it is really mm-hmm. about um, what happened, that tragedy that happened and it continues to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet... Do we need to put black people in position that they have to represent that all the time? Mm. Are they are they having to stand up and and say that again and again and again? Mm. Shouldn't it be much more from a movement from the white world to say, look, this is what's happening, this is what's happening, this is yeah. what's happening, this is what's it happening, is, and look and um, look and listen yeah. and listen. I I think you're totally right. It really is um, something that the white community, white people as a whole probably could embrace more as something that they need to look at because it's strange for the victim to be like don't hurt me don't hurt me don't hurt me you know and and for a perpetrator to just say oh that's interesting you know (laughs) oh look at them making noise you know that's interesting that is the strange dynamic um that i'm hoping we can shift from and i think this year in particular with the statues coming down and all the protests that have been happening I've had more conversations with my white friends than ever before in my life this year right about is it what you have wished for for many years is that a relief ah interesting I haven't wished for it it's not a relief because (laughs) it's not a relief but it definitely feels progressive and it feels good that that positive change is happening because I've grown up used to behaving in a certain way yeah you just I mean it's shocking the way you say you're not trying to keep your hands out of your pockets when you're in a certain situation that's that's shocking I mean that's not a thought that would come up in my mind would come up yeah and similarly with those friends you know especially if we've known each other since we were 11 we there's a dynamic that we have that has obviously functioned well and now we're breaking that to say I need you to be aware of it, it it highlights the differences between us and that can be painful because you're like, do you know what? In all the time we grew up, we had two different existences. Right. One for me, one for you. And sometimes it's easier to ignore that and once you bring it to the light, there's a pain that comes there and wondering, did you treat me unfairly in this situation? You know, and for that, did I treat you unfairly in this situation? And sometimes the answer is, yeah. <laughs> and that's uncomfortable. Right. But it's, 
it's um, for me it, it, at the moment it really helps to you know it's it's like it's shameful for me as a man now almost 50 almost 55 years old to come to a point in life where I realize how much structural uh, racism is in my whole upbringing mm -hmm. and in my whole language and the way I think and all yeah. the patterns I have in me and I have to dismantle them yeah. and it feels like I'm dismantling them but I'm only uncovering more and more and more. more I mean we are compl completely ignorant very very often and, and I think at the same time we are very sorry about it but there's a lot of work that needs there's to be done. There's a lot of work that needs to be done and the, the main thing I think more than anything it's it's painful if people just negate that there's a conversation to be had. That just doesn't feel right on any level. It's better to say, like you're saying, there's a lot of work to be done. I don't understand it all. I need to figure this out, find support, whatever it might be, as opposed to, there's no issue, why are you complaining? Right. That's that's where it becomes, for me, problematic. It's like, you've got to respect that, from this perspective, there's an issue. Mm. And if you want to come on the journey... Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. That's why I, I almost feel happy to have escaped to Germany <laughs> during this one, the peak discussion in the Netherlands, because it was like, that was horrendous to discover that it's so present in my, in in my country. Unbelievable. <laughs> but anyway, this, just to go, to go back to um, uh, music. Uh, so... I got pointed out to pointed towards your work, and then I uh, decided to reach out to you, which was, you know, it's always a threshold to jump over to actually write an email and say yeah. hello, um, can yeah. we talk? Um, <laughs> it's like really stepping into somebody's world, you know, it's a big thing. So uh, anyway, it was a lovely conversation that we had, but um, I invited you to become part of a of a project uh, that is you know yet to be developed where I'm asking seven composers um, to think about this uh, project called Global Breath where it's about uh, global represent of course something that uh, concerns us all something that concerns humanity in general and breath is something completely Elementary, something that we do all the time without thinking about it. And sometimes when we do yoga, we think yes, about it. Absolutely, very much. <laughs> and then so. we then we actually discover that that is the basis of everything. You know, that is when you come out of the womb. That is the biggest thing you have to actually do as humans: start breathing. And um, and this is project is related to the trumpet because the trumpet is able to transform uh, breath into a lot of noise. Mm. And um, I just want to maybe in this context hear from you what it's about, what it is like to then suddenly be contacted from a strange world <laughs> and be invited to an <laughs> instrument that you have not really been familiar with. <laughs> um, my inbox is always like this. It's, it pings with these surprises. So this was another surprise. I wasn't expecting... <laughs> And it was such a surprise. I thought, let me find out a little bit more about what's going on here. Because if something so kind of left field is coming in, I take it as a signal that there's something in there that I need to, some treasure to be discovered, some journey to go on that will take me further along my spiritual path, ultimately. And especially with the breath and being someone who very much enjoys the practice of yoga and meditation... I thought this has got to be someone who's conscious as a collaborator and to want to explore the breath. Um, that's an unusual perspective to kind of come from with a commission. And so I was quite excited about that. It definitely ticked all of my spiritual boxes. <laughs> I was like, oh, and it's ticking a musical box, a, a new one. <laughs> But it, it felt like all the elements of things I care about were in, in the requests. So... Ultimately, yeah, it's going to be good. In my, in my humble opinion, it's going to take me to a place that I'm going to enjoy the journey as much as, probably even more so, I reckon, than the end result. Mm -hmm. And that's nice to think, yeah, it's not going to be a painful process of nights alone, you know, sweating over empty paper. Like, it, it's going to be a bit more of an adventure. It might take me to another country. It might take me to... 
an art gallery. It might take me to a laboratory. Who knows? But and the it, work of six other composers. And the work of six other composers. Yeah. It, it's going to build a community, uh, which is always lovely. So I felt quite excited mm. but, and scared at the same time. Well, so in the beginning of a journey, there's always, at least I have it very much so, when I leave the house with a full suitcase to go on a long trip, I always feel excited and very nervous. Yeah, nervous and excited, exactly. (laughs) That cocktail. (laughs) Did you have a role model, actually, when you were studying composition? As a, as a black woman studying composition, did you need a role model? Like somebody who's like you? Someone who is like, yeah. yeah. Um, I, fortunately, there was somebody and only really this one person. There were a couple, but mainly Erilyn Wallen, who I studied with for a year. She's the person that I could see, ah, that's what this kind of a career path looks like. This, these are the kind of things that she does. These are the kind of worlds that she occupies Um, I think it was nice to have that I don't know if I aspired to it necessarily but mm. I I felt like there was a space in this space that looks like but because she was like maybe one of one or two I also felt like I couldn't be trying to be her because maybe there's not enough space for two and that's a common thing being female regardless of race that sense of there's already a woman in the space ah. can't have more than one woman in the space and heaven forbid you have more than one black woman in the space you <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> no 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 <laughs> um so yeah that, that's that's interesting it is good to have some kind of image that something is possible and if you're the person creating it then wonderful Mm-hmm. you know I just I feel like you can definitely be inspired by anyone regardless if you're mm-hmm. just listening to the music close your eyes or you're at a concert you see a performance you can always take and I think that's that's what has happened you know I've definitely taken so much beauty and um, inspiration from anyone any music maker mm-hmm. um, so that's I love that I think that's the thing that's so important to remember that it's not Uh, at the heart of it there's a vibration that people are creating and what can you do with that vibration you can use it positively you can use it negatively and um, for the most part I want to use it positively (laughs) 